morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Get those laughs out. Because you are the man is not you to man. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, we are gathered today not to hear from Scott Wakefield, but to hear from you through your spirit speaking to us about how you're calling us to do what feels like risk. To say yes to the process of allowing others to speak into our lives. Teach us today not to make the same mistake that King David has made and that that we have made in our own lives of keeping at arm's length growth you have for us by continuing to depend on our self-sufficiency. Lord, we pray um, tough prayers today asking you to um, shape and mold us so that we would see ourselves in your larger work, in your mission for the world, so that we would reframe what we hear and what we see so that we would give into the process of growth you have for us so that mission would happen so that your glory would be communicated so that we would have the joy of your spirit forming us and shaping us and increasingly making us into the image of Christ so that you receive glory and we would share in the joy of you revealing yourself through us So, Father, teach us today. We humble ourselves under the authority of your holy word, asking that from it we would learn what satisfaction and peace and contentment and joy look like when you are in charge of our lives instead of us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So lately, I've been experiencing um, a few of those sort of mid-40s moments where um, 45, okay, let's just get it out there. Some of you are like, oh, you're so young. <clears throat> but I've begun to experience some of those sort of midlife moments um, where, and, and track with me on this, it's a little complicated at first. If you don't get it the first time, you'll get it the second, maybe the third. If you don't by then, forget it. I've been having some of those rare mid-40s moments where you do something right but you totally forget about it. Only later to discover (laughs) in this moment of serendipity, oh yeah, I did the right thing. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Some of you don't understand what I mean. Some of you don't yet because you still think you're altogether awesome. (laughs) Let me explain what I mean. This is the second chance you you have to get it. It's, It's a moment where like everyone is around the table in a meeting, okay? We're around the table in a meeting, and everybody's looking at you in that moment like, remember when you said earlier you would do that thing? 
and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, sort of rings a bell, but I don't think I did that thing that you said I said I would do. So in that moment, everybody's around the table looking at you as if like you're supposed to have that thing done. Um, and your incompetence is on full display so far in front of everybody. And you're sitting there searching your laptop and you're thinking, man, where's that email? Where's that document? I know. I hope. Oh, please, Lord, Holy Spirit, in, in a work of your miraculous power now, make this document happen. That's all happening within like nanoseconds, by the way. It's <laughs> like, like that. Uh, and then as you're searching in your laptop, you discover, boom, Jesus is real. You did that thing. <laughs> right? Right? And you're like, happy dance. And, and you have this moment, this ser- sort of serendipitous moment where you realize, I did do that thing. How awesome is that? Yes, go me. Third chance. This is the last chance you get. <laughs> if you don't get it now, <laughs> just wait a few years until ad- adulthood sets in. Every once in a while, I'll have somebody come up to me. Um, not often enough, sadly. But they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, thanks so much for that thing you said. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm glad you thought that because I don't remember saying anything nice to you at all. <laughs> Let alone anybody that entire day. Uh, go me. It's... You ever had those moments where... You realize later in a moment of serendipity you did the right thing, but you forgot you did the right thing. Good, thank you. Those go-me moments, um, sadly, are kind of far and few between in life. Um, those sort of go-me moments where you discover, oh, I did the right thing or I said the right thing and I forgot I did the right thing. Those, those moments are kind of rare and lovely <laughs> because in life it's typically the exact opposite isn't it? We're typically not serendipitously discovering our competence. We are typically in situation from situation to situation, especially as we grow older, realizing I am vastly more incompetent than I ever once thought. That's called becoming an adult, peeps. That's called becoming an adult. Get a few years under your belt And uh, you begin to see the general pattern of discovery about one's life is not one of continuing to realize how amazing and competent we are, but exactly the opposite. We are continuing in life, in fact, to uncover our incompetence, our failures. The Bible word for it is our sins. The ways we miss the mark of our intent or our hope or we know God deserves what we know relationships need from us it's almost like adulthood can become this discovery sorry to sound grim welcome to church it's almost like adulthood can become this discovery of our egregious incompetence and that is hard that is hard that's a hard reality to begin to live with as you grow older and what this dynamic does to us is it creates in us this sort of skittishness to hear the truth about ourselves. We preach it yet. This dynamic of continuing to learn, to understand, to see, to feel, the ways in which we fall totally short of our intent, 
or the goodness of God. Uncovering that for ourselves, our sort of incompetence over time, is a hard thing to come to terms with. And, and, And what it does is it creates in us this skittishness at hearing the truth about ourselves. This is the problem with adults right here, by the way. If you're younger, take a lesson. Adults become immune to hearing the truth about themselves so that they don't have to deal with it. It gets even worse. (laughs) The spiral of self-deceit. We learn, as adults, to intentionally hide the truth so we don't have to deal with ourselves. That's called self-deception. It gets even worse. We become so adept, so skilled at hiding ourselves from the truth about ourselves that we cannot even know ourselves unless we're told by someone else. Now we're really preaching. This is where we really begin to meddle. And this is where the biblical model of a community of faith where people speak truth into the lives of one another becomes something that hits the road for us. We become adept, quite skilled, at hiding the truth from ourselves, so we aren't even willing or able to see the truth about ourselves unless someone else tells us about ourselves. I'm not just making this up. This week I came across a fascinating study, um, and I don't know how (laughs) psychologists or psychiatrists or people with lots of cool degrees, I don't know how they measure this stuff, Um, But data shows, uh, as I read this week, the average person is unaware of up to 40% of the truth about themselves. Think about that. The ways we come across to others. What people are reading from us. We think we know ourselves. The average person doesn't know 40% of the truth about themselves. If you think about it, that's a lot of unawareness. That's a lot of unawareness. You just think you know yourself. Which is to say, if it's true that 40% of people don't know the truth about themselves, but you think you know yourself, you're struggling with deception. You just think you know yourself. The truth of Scripture, in part, (laughs) is it usually requires someone else telling us. This is hard. This is really hard. Because you have been raised from birth with self-sufficiency, your adequacy, your knowledge, your skill, your competence, the world's measures of saying, you got this, you're going to be okay, push that aside, I don't need to hear from you. You cannot know about yourself what you cannot see about yourself. I know that sounds simple, But it is seriously profound if you think about this, friends. You cannot know about yourself what you cannot see about yourself. In 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, we learn that King David was so in deep in this spiral of self-deceit that it required someone else to tell him. He thought he had adequately covered up all his sin around him so nobody else knew. But the dude's a king and lives in a palace and sends everybody else to do what he wants to do, which means everybody knows. There are no secrets in a palace. He thought he had adequately covered up his sin when all around him knew better. They could see, but he couldn't see. Listen, 
No, no secrets in palaces. And listen, we live among other people who know more about us than we think we do about ourselves sometimes. We're that, we're that in deep. David was too unaware of himself to know there was something wrong. He was too unaware of himself to know he did something wrong. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him. And if you know anything about approaching a king or someone in power, you don't just waltz in and say, you sinner. That's just not how this works. It's not really wisdom. And so before we get to Nathan confronting King David, which we'll get to in just a second, I want to tell you um, some of the, the backstory. Let's cover the basics up to chapter 12. At first, things are going really, really well for King David. He's winning wars. He's gaining territory. He's becoming well-loved uh, by all of those under his care, well-loved by the people, and he's becoming at the same time rich beyond his wildest dreams. This was a dude who was a shepherd on the fields making nothing but what he could kill to eat. And here he is a king. He has everything at his disposal. Everything at the time for King David as it started out was up and to the right. He had built himself a new and fancy home, a house of cedar, as Scripture calls it. And after he finishes this new palace, everything's amazing. He looks out over what he's in charge of, his kingdom, from this new height of his Amazing palace. And he looks down and he notices below him a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And she was bathing on her roof. Which, pause, quick historical note, sounds crazy to us. Why would anybody bathe on the roof? Why would anybody do that? In that time, that was in fact the most private place in a home. So that's where people bathed. Which is to say, it wasn't her responsibility not to bathe there. It was David's responsibility not to look. So, Continuing on, not only did King David look, he pursued her and uh, yada, yada, yada. She becomes pregnant. Seinfeld. So sin number one in the backstory, sin number one in the backstory is adultery. Okay. Things go from bad to worse because then he tries to cover up his sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, meaning he's a foreigner, brings him home from the battlefield. He's fighting for the Israelites, but he's a foreigner. And he's hoping that Uriah the Hittite would arrive home to see his beautiful wife, wife Bathsheba after he's been away at battle. And uh, you can fill in the blanks there too. So that hopefully Uriah the Hittite thinks this pregnancy happened because of him. But in a twist of irony, this foreigner was more faithful than David was. And he didn't sort of go along with David's plan. Uriah basically says, how can I enjoy this pleasure with my wife Bathsheba when my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield? <laughs> David's, David the king sitting there going, daggone faithful man of honor. <laughs> Messing with my plans to cover up my adultery. So we've got sin number one, adultery. Sin number two, deceit. And David gets desperate. And he sends orders to the battlefield to have Uriah sent to the front lines so that he would be killed. And that plan works. So sin number three in this backstory, which is an ugly one, is murder. Now here's the crazy part. 
David actually is living as if he has covered his tracks. He thinks he's covered up this adultery, this deceit, and this murder. So much so that he essentially carries on like nothing has ever happened and nobody around him knows. He's that unaware. He thinks it's over and it's done with. But the last verse of chapter 11, immediately preceding chapter 12, the verse immediately preceding our passage says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God sends the prophet Nathan to confront King David. This needed to be dealt with. Someone needed to say something. Someone needed to say something and have the courage to show David who he really was in ways he wasn't seeing. Jump in. Verse 1, chapter 12. Notice how wisely and carefully Nathan the prophet confronts David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, press pause. Nathan's a prophet. Uh, Prophets are spokespersons, mouthpieces for God. And in this time with Israelite kings, prophets were advisors to kings. So Nathan is a a prophet slash advisor. He speaks the truth of God into the circumstances as an advisor to the king. So, So what's difficult here for Nathan is that he knows that he was sent by God. He knows that he was sent by God in that moment to talk to the king who he knows has committed adultery, has tried to deceitfully cover up, and murdered someone. So think about about that. This is a a high ledge from which to jump for Nathan. He's he's been called by God to to confront the king. And he has no earthly idea what's going to happen as a result of it. I mean, David could chop off his head if he wanted to, right then and there. And he would be within his rights to do so. He didn't know... (laughs) what was going to be the result. But he knew he was responsible to confront the king. Because if he doesn't confront the king, that has consequences for all around David and the entire kingdom that's under his care. So he does so carefully uh, with a wisdom from which we can learn. Let's pick it up and move a little faster. Keep reading. Verse 1, he came to him, Nathan came to David and said, there were two men in a certain city. He begins to tell a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, notice this, but one little ewe lamb, a female lamb. Keep reading. One little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, the poor man with this little ewe lamb, he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children, meaning it was part of this family. It used to eat of his morsels from the the droppings from the table. used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. You can picture this little ewe lamb, poor family, female lamb, grows to become a part of the family. They feed it at dinner time. It says they care for it. It sleeps and lies in his arms. It had become a part of the family. Nathan says to David, it was like a daughter to them. (laughs) Nathan's laying it on really thick at this point. This is no ordinary lamb, if you'll notice. Nathan describes it as a ewe lamb, 
a female lamb. And he says that this female lamb used to lie or, or sleep in the arms of this poor man. The word Nathan uses here in verse 3 to describe this female lamb lying in the arms of this poor man is the same exact word used one chapter earlier to describe how Bathsheba slept or lied down in King David's arms. You're tracking. And if you're tracking, you're ahead of King David at this point. Nathan continues. Look at verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling, which is a kind word, unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it, meaning killed it, for the man who had come to him. The rich dudes got plenty, but he was unwilling, which is a kind word, to use one of his own animals, of which he has many, for his guest who has come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and killed it, which is an abuse of power, clearly. So King David is listening to this story. Obviously doesn't sit well with him. He knows how power works. He knows how abuse of power works. Keep reading verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he invokes sort of this curse on this man's evil using God's name. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. At this point, a story for David apparently was thought to be reality. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Ironically, without even knowing it, David sentences the rich man in the story to the death he himself deserved. How often do we walk around sentencing others to the stuff we see in them that is much about our own sentences we deserve? Takes one to know one. What I see in you is what I'm feeling in here, but I don't know what to do with. Right? Can't know what you don't know. Can't see what you don't see. Take someone else. Think about how, in this circumstance, David in this spiral of self-deceit. We don't know if he was tracking. <laughs> he might have been tracking at the time. King David's no dummy, right? But he has to keep the game up. So he pretends, this man's going, knowing all the while, we don't know. Think about, though, how, how, how into the self-deceit David is at this point. And how much he deserves someone coming and going, like that, right off the bat. But notice, notice how wisely Nathan, the prophet, spokesperson for God, has approached this confrontation. There's some stuff for us to learn in this. In this moment, David is furious and he's angry and he's bringing down his sort of kingly, righteous indignation at this rich man who abused his power against this poor man. And so he's feeling it in that moment as Nathan the prophet has been telling him this story. And it's right at that moment, Nathan, so good. Look at verse 7. He says to David, oh, and by the way, you are that man. 
fuck a mic drop right there, y'all. King David had been carrying on as if nothing ever happened. Aware or not, we, we, don't, we don't really know well. He makes the same mistake we all make of believing that hiding something from others, which we're not likely hiding as well as we think. He makes the same mistake we often make of, of believing that hiding it from others is the same as hiding it from God. Now there are quite a few things here that strike me as helpful to us. Um, One thing that I think is important here in this passage that's helpful is this. Did David sin? Duh, of course. (laughs) Was God upset at David's sin? Duh. Yeah, of course. Were there consequences? For sure. Very clearly. Read the rest of chapter 12. Those are consequences that happen in the immediate future as well as long term. But even though Nathan was tasked with this tough job that required a lot of risk. He handled it in a way that can be a model for us. I want to have us ask a couple questions of ourselves. How do, how do you approach situations where no, you know, you know, someone's got to say something. And you're a someone that knows the something that's got to be said. Let me ask it again, because as it turns out, this is every single one of us. How do you approach situations where you know someone's got to say something? Because if you don't say something, this is not going to move forward. This mission, this person's growth. This is a tough spot to be. In reality, we're all in that. In our marriages, in our families, with our friends. Everyone around us actually needs us to be good at this. That's a tough spot to be. Because it can be, it can be the difference between people who atrophy and don't grow and people who are open to the work of God and growth. It's as simple as that. That's a tough spot to be, to manage this sin confrontation thing. But this is important for us to be aware of for a number of reasons. Lacking the courage to say what needs to be said means that you have functionally allowed, when you know what needs to be said, you functionally allowed sin to do its thing. And you know it. And you see it. And you refuse to be faithful with the knowledge that will help somebody else perhaps be open to the work of God in their life. Which means you have said, it's cool with me. It's cool with me. If sin does its thing in you and I watch. Make no bones about what following Jesus is like. It's saying yes to being a part of a process where we are open to the work of God in us. And there is much more you can't see that you're refusing. In part, you're not hearing because others around you are too lacking courage to tell you what you need to know and what you need to see. That's a tough spot to be. Let's recognize that. But it's important to be aware of. 
Because lacking the courage to say what needs to be said means you have agreed that sin is allowed to grow unchecked in the lives of other people. And when sin grows unchecked, it wreaks absolute havoc in the lives of people around you. And you have functionally said, that's cool with me. Go ahead. I remove myself from my responsibility for the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Nathan stepped up and he said, not on my watch will I be responsible for my friend King David who needs to hear from God. And he approached it wisely and carefully and tactfully. You don't just walk into a king and start telling it like it is. Which is to say this isn't a a lesson in walking around as many Christians sort of like to do, sort of wantonly and unwisely saying what needs to be said to everybody all the time. Like walking around saying, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. (laughs) After a few of those, people start going, I think you're the man. There is a place, there is a place for righteous indignation. Truth is truth. I get it. But it needs to be dispensed carefully and wisely. And that truth needs to be embodied so that restoration of that person with God is the goal. Not you getting back from someone else, right? I want to encourage us all, I want to encourage you uh, to do the hard work of thinking about how we might become a people who wisely and prayerfully find a way to communicate to one another so that it feels like by the time they're hearing it, the voice of God instead of this human condemnation and self-righteousness that motivates so much of what we say to each other. We preaching yet? Listen, not many people get this. Not many churches, not many marriages, they don't get this. I want to encourage you to do the hard work of thinking about how we might become people who wisely and who prayerfully and carefully find a way to communicate to one another so that it's the voice of God that speaks truth about another's sin instead of our human condemnation. There are lots of things that can help us in this. One is read the word so when you're speaking, it feels and sounds like word. We track it. It's easy to talk from human condemnation because we don't know the word. Which means, how do you think people are going to feel and hear that? Another thing is to to keep in mind that the goal is restoration to God. The goal is restoration to God. This restoration horizontally obviously is part and parcel of that. But don't leave out restoration to God. David himself says this later on in the chapter. In in other words, David got what Nathan was saying. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what David said. He didn't say, I have sinned against you, even though he knew it and Nathan knew it. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. David himself had a very clear sense that he had sinned against the entire household of Uriah and Bathsheba and all of the people. He had a very palpable sense that he had let down all of the nation. And yet his first response, which is demonstrative that he got it, was, I have sinned against the Lord. Keep in mind that this is about restoration to God, which means, which means you don't have to take it all that personally as you tend to think you do. Man, we take everything personally. Right here with you. Another thing that's helpful for us, helping people see their own sin 
requires humility and courage. It requires both of those. It requires the humility to have a sort of pulse, personal vulnerability that another person can see in you before they're open to hear what you have to say to them. Don't, don't step over this piece of the process. I get the truth is truth. The truth is embodied in people. We had a God that came to us and embodied that truth in Jesus. That's a model for how we're to do this with others relationally. Speaking down truth to people as if they're going to hear the empirical, philosophical thing that you're saying behind it is, is silliness. That's not how relationships work. It requires humility to have the kind of personal vulnerability another person can see in you before they're open to hear what you have to say. Actually, Nathan showed that with David. It was the kind of moment where he could have said, listen, (laughs) adultery, deceit, murder, you're the king. You're the king. Get out of here. I don't have anything to do with you. That's how we typically respond to relationships, isn't it? Like, I don't want to sit with that person, the mess and the difficulty of them working through that. At the end of chapter 12, instead of leaving, instead of leaving David to his own cleanup and to his own mess, Nathan sticks around. He goes to his house. They eat together. They carry on the relationship. That required a personal vulnerability and sticking with it. It also obviously requires courage to confront someone with the sin they don't see in themselves. Don't, don't do a show of hands. I get sort of sick of being a preacher. I always ask this. Don't you get sick of preachers being a show of hands. But on the inside, answer this question. How many, how many people, probably on one hand for most of us, can you count where you've had to confront sin and you've had the courage to do it? It's just not a thing with most people. It's just not a thing. When, when we don't have the courage to confront sin for what it is when someone else isn't seeing it, we are saying, I leave you to what I see in you to wreak its havoc in you. People who understand what sin is for themselves don't leave others when they don't see it themselves to live out that havoc. Another little thing that's a lesson for us is that uh, when you are confronted, when you are confronted, which ain't fun, peeps, Feel free not to confront me after this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Bring it on. <laughs> when you are confronted, um, do your best, if you would, please, in, in like what we're talking about with this whole series about risk. Do your best to see this in the larger, bigger picture of what's going on. Do your best to see this confrontation as an opportunity for you to learn, to become better at the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. I just would encourage you to frame what you're receiving as input to be about a larger mission of God's goodness and glory being communicated instead of having to take it personally at this level individually because what you're saying to me is something that I need to filter as a part of my mission, right? Like taking things personally is because it attacks the self-sufficiency that is our own mission. Do your best to see this as an opportunity to learn to become who God's creating you to be so that you will be more fruitful so that the goodness and glory of God's communicated through you 
which, by the way, is how you experience joy. You experience joy by the work of God being something that's fruitful for others to grow. So try to filter confrontation in a larger frame of the mission of God and not your mission. Do you deserve to hear that stuff when others are speaking to you about your own sin? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Will it help you become a more courageous and Christ-like follower, willing to hear something hard so that you can grow, so that God's mission can move forward? Probably if you say yes to it. Which is to say, this isn't about you. So perhaps when somebody's confronting you, it's because you're not seeing something and they want you to become someone who's fruitful for the gospel. Friends, if we learned to approach confrontation of sin like this, if we would learn to say yes to the Nathans in our lives and risk saying yes, because it does take risk. We've all been raised from day one to learn a self-sufficiency that refuses to say yes to people telling us what we need to know. If we approach confrontation of sin with some courage and are willing to risk to say yes to Nathan's in our lives, it would go a long way in forming us to become the kind of people who faithfully and courageously risk for the sake of something larger than ourselves. It would mean we don't have to filter something in this way that keeps the work of God at bay. What God can do in a community of people like that a community of people open to hearing from the Nathans in their lives. It's far beyond what any of us could imagine because we get to see God reveal Himself through people. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we ask that You would give us the courage and strength to say yes to Your work in us. because we've been raised on the distrust of self-sufficiency. It is hard for us to believe that others around us can help us. So, Father, correct our thinking. Strengthen our hearts so that the result would be Your goodness and Your glory being made known in the body of Christ. Lord, give us courage to risk so that you would meet that courage with your power and do amazing things. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Real briefly, friends, the... uh,